Praise the Lord, everyone. So um, I wanted to first start by saying um, I did not ask to do this. Not in any way, shape, or form, and I kind of rebelled a bit in the beginning. Um, some things I find it far easier to do in a counseling office than I do to do here, than I do here. But anyway, but God has a plan, um, and, I, and so I want you to first understand I am under my, hover, my husband's covering, and he has asked me to do this, so I am here for that reason, not because I think I'm a preacher or any of those things, because I do not. I'm just here tonight to share my heart and to share some things that have helped me, have helped our family, and I'm hoping can help you. So let's start with prayer. Lord, we thank you for everything that you have done for us. I thank you for this evening. Lord, I ask that you will help each and every one of us open our hearts, our ears. God, let the soil of our ground be ready to receive your word tonight, God. It's not my words, but it's your word. And God, help us to hear what you have to say, God, and to apply it to our lives. And help me to be clear in all of those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you may be seated. Um, so I'm going to start right in. I am not quite the same as my husband. I tend to write out a lot of things that I'm going to say, as many of you probably know. So um, yes, we're dismissing all the wonderful classes tonight. So enjoy. Um, banished from Eden, wearing clothes of animal skins, her husband was frustrated with her on her way to be the mother of the first murdered child and the mother of his killer. Eve must have felt very low, alone, disconnected, defeated, defective, and like a total failure. What must Eve had wanted at that moment? I believe that with all her heart that Eve wished that she could have taken back that instant just before she bit into that forbidden fruit. I believed that she wished that she could have pulled back her arm as it was still outstretched towards the limbs of that knowledge of tree of good and evil and escape everything that followed. We've all experienced defeats and failures in our lives, trouble and turmoil. We know what it is to battle hurt from a parent, a spouse, or other church members, pastors, bosses, all the things. We know the pain of our own selfish anger, our hearts, envy and bitterness. Some of our failures may not be so extreme as Eve's. They might not be as catastrophic. They might not be as public, but they're just small little lapses, but they still reveal how our hearts are far from where they should be. As we ache to do things over, to undo the damage our kids, our loved ones, our close relationships suffered at the hands of our reactions, to our deep-rooted core fears and beliefs. Every single day, I see individuals who are on the verge of giving up. I see couples whose marriages are hanging by a thread. I see moms whose hearts ache for her children and the destructive choices that they're making. I see men and women alike who are overwhelmed with past failure, past decisions, and soul wounds. I see men and women with intense personal struggles struggling to simply make it through the, the rest of the day. I see men and women with self-doubt and confusion about their walk with God. They question sometimes if they're even saved. These people are real. Some of them have been in church their entire lives. Some have never stepped foot in a church. Some serve on their church ministry teams, while others are fighting a court system just to gain access to their children for reasons they did not create. I see kids, men, women, young adults, old adults, 
who are struggling every single day with expectations of being who they believe God has called them to be and who society expects them to be. If you were to see these people on the street and you ask them how they're doing, I promise you they would smile and they would say they're just fine, thanks. But underneath, they are full of regret, they're full of turmoil and pain. These are not isolated instances. I'm not talking about just a few extreme dysfunctional people living on the edge. After all, who in our midst has not experienced something going on in or around us that make us feel hurt, perplexed, frightened, and broken? Following COVID and all the things, our culture has experienced an epidemic of soul sickness, not just among people out there in the world, but among those of us in the church. Not just TCOO, but at TCOO. Those of us here tonight, we know some of this pain. We come into church and we all wear our beautiful masks and we smile really pretty. But underneath, many of us is not what's on the outside. I think you would agree that at any given time, many of us would be described by one or more of the following words, frazzled, defeated, confused, exhausted, overwhelmed, discouraged, angry, fearful, ashamed, lonely, and sadly, suicidal. That's far more prevalent than what any of us have any idea. Many of us live under a cloud of personal guilt and condemnation. We are not free to enjoy the grace and the love of our God. Not because the love of God isn't here and readily available and present for us, but because our hearts have so many dysfunctional thoughts and core fears and core beliefs that we can't possibly believe that a God of heaven could love us. So while his presence is being poured out all around us, our hearts sometimes reject that because it doesn't fit with what we believe about ourselves. Many of us are in bondage to what the Bible calls the fear of man. Many of us are gripped by the fear of man's abandonment and rejection. We fear not measuring up to what someone else thinks we should be. We fear what people think of us. We fear failure. We fear abandonment. We fear feeling defective. We fear being insignificant, invalidated, and, in, and humiliated. I don't want to suggest here that we're all a bunch of broken people. But I am saying that many of us here tonight are struggling and struggling deeply, dealing with issues that require more than just a very superstitious solution, such as, you know, I'm praying for you, sister, as we pat that Band-Aid on. When I return to Scripture, I am reminded that God did not intend for us to be this way. I read in his word where he said in the Gospel of John, that he's in John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. If God came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, why then are so many of us hurting? Why are so many Christians suffering every single day? Why are we living in a frustrated, anxious, and overwhelmed state? Why are so many suffering in addictions? Addictions that help them buffer and numb away the pain, even if it's just for a moment. Why are we not peaceful? Why are we not loving and confident and joyful and gracious and content and stable? When scripture after scripture promises that these things are promises of God to us and for us. So as evidenced by <laughs> Numbers 6, 24 through 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you that, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John 14, 27, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. Psalms 4 and 8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone are Lord. Make me to dwell in safety. I had three clients in my office today that are so full of anxiety they're not sleeping. Three today. And every one of them call themselves Christians. Isaiah 26 and 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Jude 1 and 2, peace, mercy, and love be multiplied to you. Psalms 119, 165, great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Philippians 4 and 9, in the things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, these do. We have to do it. And the God of peace then will be with you. Romans 8 and 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. After years of interacting with men and women alike about their burdens and their concerns, and after searching God's word for his wisdom, that's what I desire the most in my life, I have come to a simple but profound conclusion about the root of most of our struggles. <laughs> it's really big and deep. Number one, we have been lied to. And number two, we have absolutely been deceived. Let's go back to where this all started. Let's start at the Garden of Eden, the first home of Adam and Eve. This was a perfect, ideal environment. What took place in that setting has a huge bearing on our lives today. Let's look at the lies that were started, was the starting place for all the pain and suffering that we experience today. Eve listened to, she believed, and she acted on those lies. In some sense, every problem, every war, every wound, every broken relationship, every heartache goes back to one simple lie. As lies have a way of doing, that first lie grew and spun off more lies. Eve believed the lie, and we, the daughters of Eve, have followed in her steps, listening to, believing, and acting on that same lie. The one lie has compounded into deeper lies, lies that keep our mind bound and imprisoned by what I believe are strongholds of the mind. Some of the lies we will consider here tonight are widely believed tonight and in the following three weeks, I must add. So much so that you may find it difficult to recognize them as lies. After all, the best lies are those that look like the truth. The father of lies is also very aware of that fact. 2 Corinthians 11 and 14 states, For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He is the father of lies, as seen in John 8, 44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. He promises happiness and he pretends to have our best interests at heart, but he is a deceiver and a destroyer. He is determined to dethrone God by getting us to side with him against God. 
I want you to see how Satan may have used some subtle lies and even half-truths to kill, to, dis- to steal, and to destroy those of us and our loved ones and those around us. We are all well aware of those deceptive lies. How about this one? Become a world-class pianist instantly. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> how about this lie? Learn how to speak French or Spanish in three easy lessons. Melt 10 pounds. This is my favorite. Oh, I wish it were true. Melt 10 pounds in one day in a workout so easy you can do it at home while in your PJs. Any takers? Look better and feel younger in just minutes per day. The key to a healthier and happy life is to buy these pills. You've no doubt seen these outlandish claims on social media or checking check, check out the line at Baker's or Hy-Vee. They've been around as long as there's been advertising. Our culture is riddled with deception. Sometimes it's easy to see through the, the falsehoods, but other times deception is not so easy to detect. Deception in advertisement appears in our natural, it, it appeals to our natural human longing. Why? Because we want so badly to believe that somehow, mysteriously, overnight, those unwanted pounds could really just melt away in minutes per day without any sweat, discipline, cost, effort, or pain. Do anybody wish that? I sure do. A clever and cunning pitchman whose intention was to change Adam and Eve's thinking about God and his ways designed the very first advertising campaign. Satan's whole plan was to create division between God and his creation. Satan deceived Eve through clever combination of outright lies, half-truths, and falsehood that he disguised as truth. How did he do this? He began by planting seeds of doubt in her mind about what God had actually said. Did God really say the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made? And one day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? His next plan of action was to lead her to be careless with the word of God and to suggest that God had somehow said something that, in fact, God had not actually said. What God said was, do not eat the fruit of the tree. However, Eve quoted God as saying, neither shall you touch it. Just a little switching of the, of the words here. Satan deceived Eve by causing her to question the goodness, the love, the motives of God. His implication was, has God put restrictions on your freedom? Sounds like he doesn't want you to be happy to me. The truth is that God had said, you are free to eat from any trees of the garden. And we see that in Genesis 2 and 16, except one. The truth is that God is a generous God. In that entire garden, God had posted one keep out sign. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One out of the entire garden of Eden. The serpent further deceived Eve by lying to her about the consequences of choosing to disobey God. God had said in the day that you shall eat of it, you will surely die. Satan countered, you won't surely die. He flatly contradicted what God had already said and had Eve listened to what God had said. She would have heard the lie. The serpent seduced Eve by offering her all kinds of benefits if she would just eat the forbidden fruit. He promised that the whole world of knowledge and experience would open up to her. Your eyes will be opened, he said. He assured her that she would be equal with God. 
That is, that she could be her own God when he said, you will be just like God. Here is yet another, another lie. She was already created in his image. Yet he convinced her that she wasn't who God already said that she was. Finally, he promised that she would be able to decide for herself what was right and wrong, knowing good from evil. God had already told Adam and Eve that that was what was right and what was wrong. But Satan said, in essence, that's God's opinion, but you're entitled to your own opinion. You can make your own decisions about what's right and what's wrong. Satan deceived Eve by causing her to make her decision based on what she could see, on what she could feel, and what she thought was right. Basically, on her own human reasoning, even when it completely contradicted what God had already told her and said. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and, the tree, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her and she ate. These decisions will never affect just you. It will always impact those around you, mainly those that you love the most. Eve took the bite, but instead of the promised rewards, all those lies, all those blink and flashing lights that he saw, that, that he promised her, all the things that she was going to get for just eating the fruit, but instead of the promised reward, she found herself with a mouthful of worms, shame, guilt, fear, alienation, just to name a few. As 17th century Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks put it, Satan promises the best, but he pays the worst. He promises honor, and he pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure, and he pays with pain. He promises profit, but pays with loss. He promises life, and he pays with death. From that very first encounter in the garden to the present day, Satan has used deception to win our affections, influence our choices, and to destroy our lives. He does this through the lies that he plants into our thought processes. In one way or another, every problem that we have in this world is the fruit of deception, the result of believing a thought that simply was not true, that was planted by the serpent himself. That's how it all began in the Garden of Eden. Eve listened to the lies told her by Satan. I have no doubt that she had no idea where those lies would ultimately lead her and her family. And that's often the truth. We often think one little thing here, one little thing there. Perhaps it didn't seem particularly dangerous just to listen to the serpent, to hear him out, to see what maybe he had to say. Listening in and of itself wasn't disobedience, but there's the key. Listening to a viewpoint that is contrary to God's word put Eve in a very dangerous position that led to disobedience, which in turn led to her physical and spiritual death. So I'm, I'm here to ask tonight, who, who, are, who are you listening to? Who am I listening to? Are we listening to our co-workers who are carnally minded? Are we listening to our spouse's family who may not be followers of Christ? Are we listening to our best friend who we went to high school with or maybe we graduated from college with? Those who have never surrendered their life to Christ. The serpent will use anybody. Listening to things that are not true is the first step in our, towards our spiritual death. And that's why I believe that it is so important to carefully monitor the input that we allow into our minds and into our hearts. It's so easy to be deceived. My parents both received the Holy Ghost as young adults. 
My mom was actually pregnant with myself when she received the Holy Ghost. From the time that my mom and dad surrendered their hearts to God, they were eager to establish a Christ-centered home based on solid Christian foundation and the apostolic doctrines. They didn't have the advantages of many of the many helpful resources that we have today that are available to many parents today. However, God gave them wisdom and resolve to cultivate a climate in our home that was conducive to spiritual hunger and growth. So much so that my two siblings, and I think Jackie's here. She is here. (laughs) Um, And I couldn't help but be infected by their love for Jesus, his word, his people, and his kingdom. It annoyed us sometimes. But I think down deep we really weren't annoyed. They were intentional about surrounding us with spirituality, nurturing influences, and they made sure that if church, the church doors were open, we were here. If youth camp or conventions were happening, we were there. Family vacations consisted of general conferences, <laughs> and somehow this never seemed wrong to me. They were equally as intentional about protecting us from the influences that could be harmful to young hearts, or could desensitize us to sin. We never had a television, YouTube, or TikTok. All of our books were highly censored by our sweet mother. And if I happened to come home with a book that she didn't approve of, it went into the wood stove. For real. My parents were very intentional about the words that they used, always telling me that God had a call in my life and that he was going to use me. My parents were good parents who did their very best with the knowledge and tools that they had. But then something happens. Shannon, who grew up in that home with great, loving, imperfect parents, becomes a, young mother, becomes a young wife. She becomes a mother. She becomes a pastor's wife, all in her 20s. All the good things poured into her, all the things that were prophesied and said over her, done to her. She somehow enters that young adult stage of her life lacking confidence and spontaneity. She's riddled with insecurities, feeling incapable, inadequate, and quite frankly, every single day of her life, stupid. How does a child that has all the good things, parents that love her, she attended a Christian school from first to 12th grade, had a pastor and wife and church family and siblings that loved her, how does she suddenly feel rotten about themselves, flawed and worthless? unlovable and defective, terrified of failure? How does she experience anxiety so badly that she's laying on a wood floor at youth conference or youth camp one year, coughing up dried blood, riddled in pain so bad that she couldn't stand it, only to find out that her stomach was full of bleeding ulcers, mainly from the high levels of anxiety over the past several years? How does all this brokenness happen? What happened was Shannon believed the lies of the enemy. Because Shannon believed the lies of the enemy, she developed core fears that led to the core beliefs and the world around her that caused her to doubt who she was in God. Satan told her that she was stupid, that she was incapable, that she was incompetent, and she stepped, and if she stepped out into what God had called her to do, she would humiliate herself and everyone around her would laugh. Again, how does that happen when I wasn't brought up in a home that was that way? My parents never, I don't ever remember my parents laughing at me. The first memory that I have, 
and, and I don't, this, I, I want to first preface by saying many of you have stories that are far darker than mine. So that just tells me that there's a lot more pain. But my story is I remember I was in a, in a Christian school. Sweet Sister Stevens was my first grade teacher. And she asked, what's two plus two? And Shannon raised her hand and she said, five. What do you think the kids did? They laughed at me. I know that doesn't sound like much. It doesn't sound like much to me either. But to a six-year-old mind, that has impacted me for 43 years. For the first time, in, it's the first time in my life that I truly remember feeling humiliation. I can remember what my teacher was wearing. I can remember where the kids were sitting. It impacted my little brain so incredibly. From that day, I felt humiliation. And next week, my sister is actually going to do, talk about the brain a little bit and what happens when babies are first born. And, and we're going to bring you in the next three weeks after tonight, we're going to walk through a process of how this happens and what to do about it. We're not just going to say what, but how. I am passionate to get in front of parents because I, I, don't, I don't believe, I had no idea as a young mother the impact that my words had on my children. And, and I want to also say, those of us that have made mistakes, we've done things that we wish we could undo, we don't get redos. We have to trust in the grace of God, and we have to change today forward. We have to help our kids do better. We have to help our grandkids do better. And we as a church, I believe that God has given me some understanding on this. And I told my husband, I said, my heart breaks because I feel like so much of, so many of our parents were like me. I am not any better than anyone. I'm just old, and I've made a lot of mistakes. And I've made right some of those mistakes. And so part of why I'm willing to get up here and be a little transparent while I'm shaking in several sessions today, my stomach would be like, oh, oh, I don't want to do that. But God pushed me and said, you have to. Because I believe that, that the church needs to hear this. Not because I'm anything better than you. Please understand me when I say that. But because I made mistakes and I want to spare so many of you from that same mistake. That one experience in my life... My sister can tell you, I have struggled my whole life. I am not saying that that one thing, but this is what happens, and we'll get into this more as the weeks go on. A seed is sown when, 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 a, when a brain experiences difficult emotion. So humiliation is a pretty powerful emotion. Our brain is an electrical organ. It's full of it, like that's how our muscles move and all the things. So when there's that kind of a charge in the brain, a seed is sown. The, so my brain developed a core, so now everything in my brain screams, don't open your mouth because you're going to feel that same feeling of humiliation. What happens is for the brain to become back in what homeostasis or in balance, it then creates a, a little bit of a narrative about that emotion. So I felt humiliated. Surely there's a reason I felt humiliated. Why do you think I felt humiliated? Because I'm stupid, right? Doesn't that make perfect sense? I was laughed at by six-year-olds because I had the wrong number. So my brain just concluded that therefore you felt humiliated. That means you're stupid. 
the brain gets really wise. And as it starts growing that dendrite in the brain, and memory, if, you know, experiences happen, and feelings happen, and stories happen, and, and that gets all filtered into these dendrites, these things start growing. So now at the core, I have a, I have a fear of humiliation. Now I, f- I am stupid. And then as that thing starts growing, I start, the thought comes, I'm incompetent, I'm incapable. That thing keeps growing. I put those glasses on, and so that is the way in which I saw the world, or that, that, is, that is the way that I saw many things in my childhood, my young adult life. If anybody said something to me, because I truly believed at the core that I am, I am stupid, that I'm, I'm incapable, I've, everything in me screamed, they think I'm stupid, they think I'm stupid. And that thing grows and it grows. And every experience that now that I see the world, so everything, if Trevor says something to me, that maybe he means it funny, but my brain tells you he thinks you're stupid. That dendrite, it grows and it grows. And I believe that is a physical stronghold of the mind. That's, the, that's where the memories are stored from these things. And then what we do is we interpret every engagement that we have with people through that filter. And that's why, and that is just nothing more than a lie of the enemy. When I go back and in therapy, we, we'll take that core fear and, okay, I, you know, I'm stupid. I, I ask the, the client, let, let's, find, let's take that to court. So the prosecutor has now accused you of being stupid. Let's put that up there. Okay, let's, let's look for some evidence that, that, that you're actually stupid. Okay, I had six-year-old kids laugh at me. In first grade, there's, there's some evidence that I'm stupid. Okay, we'll check that down. Sometimes you might find a thing or two, but then, okay, we could allow the defense attorney to come along and, and have their say. And I can go through some things in my life that, that I completed that probably if I was stupid, I may, might not have been able to do that. So I have evidence contrary to that. And then what happens is, and, and that's in the, in the world that we live in, we in the church need to do that with the Word of God. We can compare the things that we believe about ourselves against God's Word. I am worthless. Is that what the Word says? My situation is hopeless. Is that what the Word says? If Satan is the father of lies, and you compare those two things, if that's what you're being told, if he's the father of lies, then I have to believe that the opposite of what we're being told in our brain is actually true. But the key is, is that we have to take every thought captive. We have to figure out what is the thought, what is the fear, what, what is going on up there, so that we can take it into captivity and we can tear it down. We can tear down the very strongholds of the mind. We've heard this around here many times, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It matters how we think. What you think about matters. What you meditate on matters. And that's why the little things that get into the brain and one little, I'm not talking about bitterness here tonight, but you know, study the word on on a seed of bitterness. What happens with that? The Bible says it grows and it defiles many. That's a stronghold. That's what these things do. That's what these things do. Just as Eve 
partook of the serpent's lies, we do the same thing. Beginning in early childhood, we, for, we, we form core fears and core beliefs about ourselves and how we perceive the world around us. The relationships that we form and the experiences we have as children and as young teens significantly impact our belief system about ourselves, about our loved ones, about God, our church, our family, and the world in which we live. And just to I asked my husband for permission for this. I, I, get, I have about five more minutes. Um, so my, you all know my husband. He's a wonderful man. Um, as a father, he was a great father. He did a million things right. He had this way about him, though, that he needed things to be done a certain way and at a certain time and in a certain order exactly the way he wanted it done and those kinds of things. Well, which is some things in that are good, I guess. They are. Um, so I remember one day when we were in Caribou, Braxton was about eight years old and he was on the drums and my husband is in his day and still is a really good drummer. And I can remember I was on the keyboard and we were practicing a song and I promise you my husband made Braxton redo that song probably 15 times and I remember he kept saying practice doesn't make perfect perfect practice makes perfect practice doesn't make perfect perfect practice makes perfect that's what this child heard most of his life and I remember his little Braxton's face was beet red and tears were just coming down because he struggled so bad to get it perfect because in order to please his dad what did his dad want it to be perfect. So uh, this journey in my own life has taken, uh, I don't just get up here, I, I take this stuff to heart and I have a story that's going to put me in the doghouse. Um, but, but what happened with that, do you really think that my husband meant that the way it sounded? Or that the, the way, do you think, but if you think about those words, what do you think Braxton's little heart and brain started believing at that young age. Unless he's perfect, he doesn't measure up. Until he does things perfect, he's going to be a failure. He's 26 years old, and he still struggles every single day <laughs> with feeling imperfect. And I can remember so many nights before he went to IBC, that boy, would hit, you would have to walk on top of stuff in his room. His room was a complete, that was another story. Um, but he would practice those IBC songs over and over and over. My husband would put the pillow over his head. And I would say, well, you told him perfect practice makes perfect. He's practicing it perfectly. <laughs> um, so a few weeks, a month ago or so, my wonderful husband in his wisdom didn't get defensive when we, this, I believe the Lord brought this to, this to my mind and looking at our son and comparing kind of some of the struggles that he has as adult as being an adult. And the end result was my husband wrote him a pretty long letter and he from the bottom of his heart it apologized for what he had done. He used the words that he had used and he didn't defend himself. He said, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, Braxton, I didn't mean it that way. I wanted you to, to be Perfect, I guess, but not because I, you had to be perfect to, to meet 
my love to get my love, but I wanted you to do it right. I wanted you to to be all you could be. I wanted you to do your best. I didn't want you to be lazy and all the things. And Braxton was like, Dad, you're you know, whatever. My story is a couple months ago we were driving, my husband and I were driving home from I think we're actually in Missouri. And my daughter texts me, and she's like, Mom, I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay, I'm on the, on the road. And she's like, can we, let's just text, because I, I don't remember what she was doing. I'm like, okay. And I'll sum it up, because I have two minutes. But she's, so it, it was around the end of January, because her birthday is January 31st. And she said, I'm really struggling. And I'm like, okay, what are you struggling with? And she said, I, it's my birthday's coming up, and a couple of my friends want to take me out to, I think she said P.F. Chang's, if I remember correctly. And she said, Mom, I know that they don't have the money to do that. She said, but I'm really struggling with feeling like I'm a burden. And I'm like, okay, I can talk her through this. This isn't very difficult. She said, but the next thing I'm going to say, I don't want you to be offended by it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and she said, my whole life, my birthday came, so, under, so there was Thanksgiving, which, as many of us know, that's pricey money, food and all the things. Then would come Christmas. Then January 22nd was Braxton's birthday. January 31st was Brooklyn's birthday. And February 2nd was the bishop's birthday. We were poor, <laughs> small church people. What do you think that did to the mom? Apparently, I do very vividly remember being very stressed out through the month of December. I knew what was coming. And then January, it's the birthdays and all of this. And when you only have so much money in the pot, what does that mean? <laughs> so I, I did not in any way intend to speak words that made my daughter feel like she was a burden or that, that her birth was a burden. But she, she went on to tell me how the, some of the things that every year she struggled. She said, Mom, all I wanted was to have a, a, a meal with you and Dad. And she said, and I knew every year you struggled, she said, for, for things I didn't even care about. She said, and I didn't know how to say that. And she said, I'm sorry, I, you know, I didn't mean to be the burden. And she said, now here I am being a burden to my friends, and I know they don't have the money, and I just, I'm the burden, burden, burden. And so I stopped her, and I said, Brooklyn, we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not be your mom right now. And I'm going to pretend that I, you're just a client. And I said, so let's go to that mom. She's come through Christmas. It's now your birthday. You, you, that mom probably wanted to be able to give her children everything she could for their birthday. And when she wasn't able to give her kids everything she felt that they deserved for their birthday, what do you think she felt? Go there for a minute. When you think about your own children, when you so desperately want to do something for them or you want to give them something, but you don't have it in you, it looks like it's about the child. But if we're really honest and we ask ourselves, why was my not being able to get Brooklyn everything she wanted for her birthday? Why was that a problem for me? Does anybody want to venture and guess? What do you think that made me feel like? It triggered me that I'm a failure as a parent because I couldn't give my daughter what she so desperately wanted and deserved for her birthday. I'm defective somehow because other parents, I look around at all these people and their things, you know, that are on Facebook and all, the, all these beautiful things that they do for their kids on their birthday and all the wonderful things. 
that I, I want to rejoice in, but really what that triggered in me was my own insecurities, my own inability to provide what this parent is giving. So if Brooklyn had this person for a parent, this parent is successful, but I'm somehow a failure. And somehow in my fear of failure and feeling like a defective mom, I instilled some pretty significant feelings in my own daughter that to this day she will not ask for help. She will die before she will come and say, I need assistance with something. She is as bullheaded as her mother, and she will do everything on her own because she doesn't want to feel like she is a burden. And guess who did that to her? <laughs> and I am not here saying that we, like the way I just worded that, I did have a part in that. I'm not the whole reason. But those kinds of things that we do as parents, sometimes we don't even know that we're doing them. Another one, I, this last summer I asked her, I said, Brooklyn, if I gave you permission to come at me with anything you wanted to say, I, what, what is one thing that I did that hurt you? So this was actually before this last one. And she's like, oh, mom, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to. And I think probably this is why she dared to text me because of the, this particular thing. I don't know. I just felt like it was time for my husband and I to be honest and open with some of the mistakes that we had made. We were great parents. We did our best. We, we did everything that we knew to do. And I believe that that's all of us here tonight. But sometimes when we recognize that things have, that, our, that we, our, our actions have had an impact on others around us, it's a great thing to model to our children what you do when you have hurt someone. So I said, what have I done? You know, is there anything that I, I did? And um, she said, oh, no. I said, no, no, I'm not defensive. I'm going to take it. And she said, and some of you will remember Paloma Ortiz. She said, I remember when I was 12 years old, you had just started letting me do my hair. And again, my brain was like, oh, God. I so remember those days. I care deeply what her hair looked like. Because if her hair wasn't perfect, guess who that was a reflection of? Me. I wish I knew then what I know now. I, I wouldn't care. My kid would come in here with hair everywhere. And I would be like, deal with it. That's my kid. <laughs> but I was so bound by what people thought. And if my kid didn't look perfect, it meant that I was an imperfect parent. And I made all these things that, and instilled in my kids the need to be perfect. Well, and, I, and so anyway, apparently I said, oh, I just wish you could do your hair like Paloma. She's, she's your, you know, I don't remember how close in age, but I think they were relatively close. I'm like, well, you know, why, I wish you could do your hair like Paloma. I don't even remember saying that. I remember probably thinking it, because that didn't sound too far off base, but I honestly don't remember saying it to her. But she said her whole teenage years, she struggled with, like, feeling inadequate, or like she, because she couldn't do her hair like Paloma, that she never m measured up. These are just a couple of things that I have experienced with my kids, and it makes me understand how sometimes even the things that we don't understand of what we're doing. So if nothing else, if I can help us all to just kind of open our minds, to, to listen to the things that we say, and to kind of reflect upon them, and if we make a mistake, to kind of make that right, instead of just reacting our whole lives from core fears that we have within us. And I, you know, my husband and I have talked about this a little bit, that at the, I think at the fourth one, 
He's going to have a fire pit out back or out front, whatever you want to call it. And so over the next few, couple of few weeks, I'm going to ask you to, to search your heart and ask God to help you to bring to, to your mind, what are some of your core fears? What are some of the things that you have struggled with your whole life? Is it a fear of failure? Is it a fear of being defective, not being good enough, being inadequate, incapable? I mean, there's so many of them that we live our lives trying to be perfect in all our ways that it, it impacts everything. It impacts the way we see the world around us, God, everything. And at the, four, at the fourth week, we're going ha- to write these things down, and we're going to take those things to the fire pit, and we're going to burn them. We're going to ask God to help us to recognize where, where some of our own stuff lies. Because to find it's that, I promise, will unlock so much in your own heart and in your mind for why you do some of the things that you do, why you struggle with certain people, why you struggle in, with certain things. Because it's often in, in a, a fear within us that has nothing to do with the person, but it's just they've triggered that somehow. And if we can recognize that, the freedom is just unbelievable. That's all I have for tonight. I did it before 8 o'clock. <laughs> so.